0: number two tell me if you can hear me or not well specifically if you can't hear me on the stream tell me pete at the pete news talk 1110 993 wbt the phone number is 704-570-1110 1-800-wbt-1110 uh engineers are aware of the uh the issues on the live stream and uh they are working to get all of the ones and zeros back in line as they should be the Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has been hosting meetings with Internet platforms and allowing them to pl- uh, to flag for deletion any material to which the government objects. This until now secret program resulted in the federal bureaucracy meddling in the 2020 elections. So writes Streif, Streif, Streif at uh, redstate.com. This is all from the reporting by uh, uh, a journalist named Lee Fang, as well as Ken Klippenstein, or Klippenstein, over at TheIntercept.com. It's a very lengthy report. Meeting records of the CISA Cybersecurity Advisory Committee, the main subcommittee that handles disinformation policy, shows a constant effort to expand the scope of this agency's tools to, quote, foil disinformation. Jeff Hale, the director of the Election Security Initiative at the CISA, again, this is a subagency of the Department of Homeland Security, which, according to the Intercept report, uh, kind of... uh, uh, lost some of its targets with the whole war on terror winding down and what do we do now by the way this is a very this is a very similar story that plays out in societies and in American government over the years for example the um what DEA right it, it had its roots in if I remember this correctly it had its roots in uh, the prohibition era there were but but when prohibition went away you get this whole You know, government bureaucracy and law enforcement agency, and what do you do with it? Well, let's ban marijuana and go after people using that. Um, Jeff Hale, the director of the Election Security Initiative, recommended the use of third-party information-sharing nonprofits as a, quote, clearinghouse for information to avoid the appearance of government propaganda, end quote. They knew exactly what this would look like, and there's a there's a perfectly rational and reasonable explanation for why people might consider this to be government censorship. It's because it's government censorship. That's what exactly is occurring, right? They're use, the government is using the private sector to do the thing that the government cannot do. The government is prevented by law from censoring people on social media. So what they do is they they find the posts. They forward the posts over to the platforms, and then the platforms take them down. That is, as Jonah Goldberg wrote in his book that I think he forgot he wrote, called Liberal Fascism, that's fascism. That is what that looks like, folks. For all the anti-fascists that have been running around, assaulting people with red hats, talking about uh, threats to the democracy, and everyone's a proud boy, and all the moms that are objecting to the dirty books at the schools, well, they're all fascists, too. Right. You guys might want to turn some of your attention on the government and this this behavior. All right. Going on here. Let's see. Skipping ahead. April 2022. There was an announcement from the disinformation of the disinformation governance board faced immediate backlash all across the political spectrum. And uh, they eventually scrapped this idea. This was August. And while free speech advocates cheered the dissolution of the board, other government efforts to root out disinformation have not only continued but actually expanded to encompass additional DHS sub-agencies like Customs and Border Protection now. The draft copy of the Department of Homeland Security's 2022 Quadrennial Homeland Security Review that was seen by The Intercept also confirms that DHS views the issue of tackling disinformation and misinformation as a growing portion of its core duties. Its core duties. DHS believes that it is part of its core duties. While counterterrorism remains the first and most important mission of the department, The agency's work on these missions is evolving and dynamic and must now adapt to terror threats exacerbated by misinformation and disinformation spread online, including by domestic violent extremists. Oh, I wonder if this has anything to do with that report that uh, just got put out. It was like, oh, all the extremists online, they're all right wing, all the right wing violence. It's all right wingers. As if we all didn't just see the last two years of left-wing violence, and even going back further, and we've talked about that in, the, in all during yesterday's program. DHS's expansion into uh, misinfor—oh, hang on, let me back up. The broad definition of what they term threat actors it poses risks to vaguely defined critical infrastructure. Right, this is in the name of the agency: is critical infrastructure what exactly is critical infrastructure, right? It is an area as broad as trust in government, trust in public health, trust in elections, and trust in financial markets. So if I'm worried about inflation because of the profligate runaway spending by Congress— does that make me a purveyor of misinformation or disinformation or malinformation? Am I on someone's radar? I probably probably already am. I'm probably already on somebody's radar. I mean, I'm not a big blip what having lost the 90 pounds and all. But no, I don't think I'm not I don't think I'm a very big blip on somebody's radar, but I have no doubt if somebody's got a list someplace I'm on it. just for the fact that I've worked in talk radio for 20 years, right? But seriously, it a threat actor is someone who poses a risk to critical infrastructure, which is defined as trust in government, trust in public health. How? What have you guys done to earn trust in government? What have you done to earn trust in public health or elections or the financial markets? Like This idea that I'm just supposed to trust you based on what? The credential you hold? Sorry. No, especially after you get caught in a bunch of lies for several years like that doesn't build confidence or credibility. So, no, uh, you should not. You should not trust your government. You should not trust your public health officials, your elections officials, your financial markets. Just blindly trust them just based on their position, their status as a member of the elites or something, their credential. They're an expert. So they would know. Maybe this would fly a little bit better if I didn't just come through a pandemic where the people in charge told a whole bunch of lies. And yeah, they were lies. Then they knew they were lies, but they said them anyway. I haven't even touched on the climate change stuff. DHS's expansion into misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation represents an important strategic retooling for the agency, which was founded in 2002 in response to the 9-11 attacks as a bulwark to coordinate intelligence and security operations across the government. But traditional forms of terrorism, posed by groups like al-Qaeda, evolved with the rise of social media, with groups like the Islamic State using platforms like Facebook to recruit and radicalize new members. After initial reluctance, social media giants worked closely with the FBI and DHS to help monitor and remove ISIS-affiliated accounts. So let me get this straight. In 2002, after we were attacked by jihadists and then went to war in Iraq based on, you know, totally legit information that came from the government um, and the creation of DHS. um, And you guys had this mission to keep the information coordinated with everybody and um, make sure there's no misinformation, disinformation, malinformation. Get at these uh, these jihadists that are recruiting on social media. You guys were initially reluctant to do that the big tech platforms were initially reluctant to work with the government to take down ISIS recruiting accounts and posts. But it doesn't seem like they had much of a problem taking down our stuff. (laughs) What's up with that? You know, at some point, when the behavior looks a lot like you give deference to the jihadists over American citizens, at some point, that becomes, you know, the more obvious explanation for something i am an occam's razor kind of a guy i look at the things presented and i i try to draw the most logical obvious conclusion you know when you hear the hoof beats you think horses not zebras right Internal documents expose top U.S. government agencies working closely with social media companies to censor Americans on the platforms. FBI, Homeland Security collaborated with the top social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook, to censor various forms of content under the banner of fighting disinformation. Microsoft executive Matt Masterson. In one message with Jen Easterly, a Homeland Security director, said, quote, "...platforms have to get comfortable with government. It's really interesting how hesitant they remain." Before the 2020 election, tech companies, including Twitter, Facebook, Reddit, Discord, Wikipedia, Microsoft, LinkedIn, and Verizon Media met monthly with the FBI, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the CISA, as well as other government representatives. What started as a mission to combat foreign threats in the aftermath of 9-11 has moved towards fighting disinformation using the justification that it radicalizes the homeland and could lead to public health disruptions or political violence. See, maybe I'm just being a little bit of a conspiracy theorist here. Maybe I'm a wee bit paranoid, but... That last part right there from Brandon Dre at Daily Wire. The justification is that it radicalizes the homeland and could lead to public health disruptions or political violence. What did we just get done talking about over the last, uh, gosh, what, three days or so? How the media and the left, but I repeat myself, are trying to assign responsibility for the attack on Paul Pelosi to the political rhetoric on the right, saying that Republicans calling for the ouster of Democrats, that Republicans calling for the ouster of Nancy Pelosi specifically, that they are the reason why an insane person attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband in their home in San Francisco. This constant drumbeat to assign responsibility to the right for any act where a person on the left is victimized, and even not even persons on the left, right? We see it with uh, with tragedies, you know, mass shooting events, right? They go after Republicans and they, they try to assign responsibility. But this connection to speech codes, right, this, this connection to political rhetoric equals the violence. That's what this DHS-CISA crowd is doing. Because right? when you define it as broadly as they have that well, anything that could undermine trust in our institutions or our elections. Hey, you know what? Sometimes an election in a particular place should be undermined because the results might actually not be accurate. I know this is going to come as a shock to people who know no history, but there are actually examples, three of them from North Carolina just within the last 20 years of election fraud. It happens. It absolutely happens. Does that undermine confidence in the system? Probably. But if I talk about that, then I'm undermining confidence in the elections, so I can't talk about a thing that is actually true because it'll undermine people's confidence in a system that you guys suck at administering. That's So that's on me. See, again, it, it always comes back to the person who didn't do it is now being blamed for being responsible for doing it. And the people who did do it They get to skate. Last year, a top FBI uh, counterterrorism official came under fire when she falsely denied to Congress that the FBI monitors American social media and had therefore missed threats leading up to the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Right, Because she said at the time that we did not monitor American social media. But in fact, the FBI has actually spent millions of dollars on social media tracking software like Babel X and Data Miner. According to the bureau's official guidelines, authorized activities include quote, proactively surfing the internet to find publicly accessible websites and services through which recruitment by terrorist organizations and promotion of terrorist crimes is openly taking place. Another FBI official, a Joint Terrorism Task Force officer, described to the Intercept being reassigned this year from the Bureau's International Terrorism Division, where they had primarily worked on cases involving Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Now they're working on domestic terrorism to investigate Americans, including anti-government individuals, such as racially motivated violent extremists. Would that be like Black Lives Matter? Oh, no, I'm kidding. No, it's going to be the... uh, what are the guys with the tiki torches? With it. anyway, they work on an un- they work on an undercover basis online to penetrate social networking chat rooms, online forums, and blogs to detect, enter, dismantle, and disrupt existing and emerging terrorist organizations via online forums, chat rooms, bulletin boards, blogs, websites, social networking. Um, the Privacy Act of 1974, enacted following the Watergate scandal, restricts government data collection of Americans exercising their First Amendment rights. That is a safeguard that civil liberty groups have argued limits the ability of the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI to engage in surveillance of American political speech expressed on social media. But the statute maintains exemptions for information collected for the purposes of a criminal or law enforcement investigation. So you can't just keep scooping it up. It's got to be part of some investigation. Faiza Patel, senior director of the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program, said, quote, there are no specific legal constraints on the FBI's use of social media. The attorney general guidelines permit agents to look at social media before there is any investigation at all. So it's kind of a Wild West out there. The FBI official that The Intercept interviewed in 2020 amid the George Floyd riots said the drift towards warrantless monitoring of Americans, of which he said, quote, man, I don't even know what's legal anymore. That's always a helpful position for somebody in law enforcement to have. huh? Oh, sorry. By saying that, am I undermining confidence in, in an institution here? He doesn't even know what's legal anymore. But here's the problem, because on the surface, I don't really have any problem if I'm posting stuff on social media and some FBI people come through and they see it and I'm posting, you know, all sorts of violent threats and that sort of stuff. They can access it. They can see it just like anybody else can. Right. Here's the problem. They now have a direct line to the tech companies to get all of that stuff taken down. To get stuff that they think is problematic in some way. And one email from them goes to the tech company on a special portal that they set up for the government email addresses. And you just report somebody and then they're, they're taken down. Maybe they're shadow banned, whatever. And then, of course, the most famous example of this. The Hunter Biden laptop story. Twitter banned links to the New York Post's report on it. Facebook throttled users' ability to view the story. And then uh, Facebook, or Meta, I guess is the new company name, CEO Mark Zuckerberg went on Joe Rogan's podcast recently and said Facebook did in fact limit the sharing of that story. And he said, quote, We ha- that the FBI told Facebook, we have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump. And when the New York Post story came out, it fit that pattern that the FBI had told them to look out for. The FBI, which, by the way, knew about the existence of the Hunter Biden laptop and didn't do anything about it before the election. Purely coincidental. News Talk 1110-993-WBT-WBT. 704 570 1110 1 800 WBT 1110. Let me go over here to Tim waiting patiently on the phone. Hello, Tim. Welcome to the program. Hey,
1: Pete. Love your show. Thank you,
0: sir. What's going on?
1: Uh, well, you got the dif- disinformation and the government wanting to cover up things. Did we not, did the state of North Carolina not just settle with some victims and family members of some black Americans in the, in the eastern part of North Carolina from? chemical uh castration
0: yeah the eugenics projects that the democrats ran uh in this state for a very very long time yeah they just gave them a bunch of uh, settlement money for that the descendants of those people
1: yeah but if we go online and say something about it do not do they not want to ban us and that's the way they do not want they want to control us
0: well uh, yeah i mean if you mentioned that that occurred uh are we undermining people's confidence in a critical infrastructure of government institution of some kind. Yeah. I mean, is that censorious, uh, is, uh, is, is talking about the Wilmington race riot, right? The, where, where Democrats whipped up by, uh, the, the news and observer, uh, went, went to Wilmington and they, uh, they, they murdered and overthrew a duly elected government of, of blacks and Republicans and, uh, and thus controlling the city uh, of Wilmington for decades to come, uh, it, d- d- does that undermine people's confidence in elections? Does it undermine their confidence in the government? And, it, and if so, then would I be censored for discussing the Wilmington race riots of 1898?
1: Exactly. I say it is, I mean, I don't believe in the government or trust in the government or the state government whatsoever, especially if they want to censor us in any way, shape, or form. I mean that that goes against our first amendment as free speech.
0: Yeah, I mean people are allowed to be wrong all the time. I mean you've heard the average lefty that calls into this show so you know, right? <laughs> people yes, sir, are I listen, yeah. I listen to you all the time. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean people people have opinions and they have beliefs and they're not all correct. And now we get to hear all of them. I mean, it used to be like back in the day, you had the guy that lived down the street and everybody knew he was kind of, you know, and, he, you know, if you, if you went down there and talked to him, you'd find out he has some pretty kooky ideas. Now the problem is we realize that everybody's got a whole bunch of kooky ideas and they're putting them all on social media all the time. So it's not just one guy down the street. It's everybody on the street that's got some kooky ideas about something. And uh, it's very concerning to me if you've got government agents that are flagging comments and then having the social media companies censor those comments For the government, because that's what's happening. Tim. That's exactly right. Yeah. I appreciate the call, Tim. Thanks, sir. Hey, thank you. Hi, buddy. Take it easy. Yeah. I I had the sense that some of this stuff was occurring, but I I assumed, I I tried, you know, me, I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I. Gave the benefit of the doubt to these tech companies that they were doing these things on their own. That they just happened to be, you know, similarly populated with leftists in their managerial ranks. And they all were kind of on the same page as the leftists in the governmental ranks. And so that's why their censorship uh, leanings uh, all went the same direction. But this now, this now opens an entirely different chapter. Because this is now the government directing through a back channel portal, right? Where anybody with these email addresses, they get access into the government email addresses, get access into the portal, and then they could send the reports for action against individual users. Which I'm now just getting a visual like all of these FBI people and DHS people, they're just like sitting in some. Like some like the cubicle farms or like the Bitcoin mining operations that you see right they're all just hanging around just trolling the internet they're just they're basically like Taylor Lorenz like that that millennial idiot who somehow or another keeps failing upwards in the journalism ranks and her entire beat is to go into uh you know snapchat groups or Clubhouse groups, whatever the social media platforms are of the day, and she goes in there and she tries to out people for having, you know, double plus wrong, ungood thoughts. And for some reason, she although I did see she's now over at uh, she 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 did a Substack. She's now got her own Substack, which is just perfect. <clears throat> anyway, the Hunter Biden laptop story, the most high-profile example of how law enforcement agencies pressured technology firms. In many cases, the Facebook and Twitter accounts that got flagged by DHS or its partners as dangerous forms of disinformation or potential foreign influence, they were parody accounts. DHS was flagging parody accounts. They were flagging accounts with no followers. (laughs) These... Well, we call them on Twitter the egg accounts because when you set up a Twitter profile, by the way, and if you don't put a little picture of something in your avatar screen, it just shows a little egg. And just heads up, me personally, I don't engage really with eggs because usually they're bots. So uh, I don't, yeah, I don't really care. So you got people with no followers that are retweeting something and, and they're getting flagged. These accounts are getting flagged as potentially you know, dangerous disinformation uh, purveyors. Zero. So what kind of impact is that having? They have no followers. That means nobody's seeing their stuff. If you have no followers, nobody, literally zero people see it. (laughs) But this is what they're spending their time flagging. In May, the Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt took the lead in filing a lawsuit to combat what he views as sweeping efforts by the Biden administration to pressure social media companies to moderate certain forms of content appearing on their platform. And the suit alleges government-wide efforts to censor certain stories, especially ones related to the pandemic. Biden administration attorneys have responded in court by claiming that the plaintiff's lack of standing and that social media firms pursued content moderation policies on their own volition without any kind of coercive influence from the government. That's that's the government's position. They did this on their own. Oh. On October 21, the judge presiding over the case granted the attorney's general permission uh, the attorney's general permission, to depose Anthony Fauci, CISA officials, and communications specialists from the White House. And while the lawsuit has a definite partisan slant, pointing the finger at the Biden administration for allegedly seeking to control private speech, a lot of the subpoena requests are for information that actually goes back into the Trump administration and it provides a window into the absurdity of the ongoing effort. Again, this is all from The Intercept. I gave you just the highlights that were, in my opinion, the highlights. There are others. It's a very long piece, lots of information. Highly recommend you read it. The Intercept.com leaked documents outline DHS's plans to police disinformation. David Strom at HotAir.com says even the meanest of intellects can see that something like a narrative, trademark, exists. Sometimes we call it the current thing or the hive mind. Some of the edgier folks on the interwebs refer to it as the NPCs. You know what that means? The NPCs, non-player character. You know what a non-player character is? See, if you're not a gamer like I, oh, allow me to be the voice of the of of the kids today. Actually, gamers are on average—I want to say it's like uh, 38 years old or 42 years old, something like that. Do you know that? Anyway, um, gamers know what NPCs are. If you ever play a video game and you're like the the main character, obviously, and you encounter other characters in the game, now. If it's a single-player game, it's just you. You're playing the computer, right? Uh, think of it like uh, like a racing game, and you got all of these other cars driving around with you, right? Those are all NPCs. Those are non-player characters. And if you're, you know, if you're like uh, playing a, a wizard game or something, and they got the monsters, like those monsters are NPCs. But it's particularly uh, analogous this NPC concept is uh, if you ever play a game where, like, you're walking through the village and you have to go talk to people or you're interacting with, you know, uh, some members of the town or some uh, members of your platoon or whatever, and especially back in the old days, like, the, the graphics were terrible and, like, the the, the lips never matched up with the, with what they were saying and stuff, but they always behaved in the exact same way. The NPCs would always just regurgitate whatever it was, that was the common line, like, uh, like if you have a bad reputation in the village and every every single NPC is going to say, no, I won't talk to you. No, I won't talk to you. And they were all the same. And they all looked the same. They all sounded the same. That's kind of the idea. When you hear people talk about NPCs, particularly the kids on the social media, as if they're all pre-programmed characters in a video game. They have, they have no free will of their own. Okay? How does this relate to the narrative? Well, when certain issues come up, anybody deviating from a certain position is viciously attacked or canceled, right? And the enforcers come from a certain economic or social class. We'll call them the elite. And why, or as the kids say, elite, L E E T. Anyway, um, while everybody can be victimized, the people most vulnerable are, ironically, members of the same class. Why is this? Well, it's because they, more than most, depend upon the social acceptance of their peers. You see, the elite are the professional class. They manage things. They produce and distribute our news, our entertainment. They run corporations. They inhabit all levels of government. They run our schools and universities, and in general are the most visible and powerful in our society. Almost everybody who is white-collar aspires to join this club. So why does it seem like they're always saying the same thing? Jeffrey Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. He wrote about this and he wrote in terms of the, uh, the pandemic and the great Barrington declaration, right? And he says, where was the outrage about school and church clothes, uh, closings and the mandatory masking and the wrecked businesses and the bad science and the astonishing lies foisted on the public day after day after day. How did that happen? Why is it still happening? In particular, where are the intellectuals? I mean, some, yes, spoke out, and they got punished as a lesson to others. The authors of the Great Barrington Declaration have said repeatedly that their short statement was the least innovative and controversial statement that they had ever written. It was a plain statement of widely accepted public health principles applied to the current moment. But the moment in which they dropped that bomb was one in which... Widely accepted principles of public health had been trampled and buried for the six months prior. Thus, did this plain statement of normal truths come across as shocking. See, it wasn't just what was being said, but that actual credentialed academic professionals would dare to deploy their knowledge and status in service of truth rather than regime priorities. That it was shocking at all Really tells you all you need to know, he says. Uh, Going back again to hotair.com, COVID is hardly unique. Climate change, energy policy, income redistribution, globalism, abortion, population control, transgenderism. I mean, name any important issue. And at some point, everybody in the ruling class aligned and started mouthing the same ridiculous platitudes. And more importantly, viciously silenced any dissent. So Tucker says, how did this happen? Well, one explanation is that a lot of intellectuals are controlled by a secret cabal somewhere in the world that's pulling all the strings. Now, Tucker dismisses that. He says he doesn't think they could pull it off. He mentions Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates. But he says, I see clowns and fools uh, in uh, he sees them as clowns and fools whose wealth massively outstrips their intelligence. He says there's a better explanation. Opportunism. Another word might be careerism. This particularly applies to journalists and intellectuals. Their career paths absolutely require compliance with prevailing narratives. Any deviation could lead to potential doom for them. The spirit of going along is the driving force of everything they do. Now, uh, the author of the piece at HotAir.com, David Strom, I think is his name. Yeah, David Strom. He disagrees with Tucker. He says Gates and Schwab do play the role of helping other, or rather, uh, they help gather the uh, transnational elites into a coherent mass. So he says they, they, they may be clownish, but they do play a role, right? They create a mass of these people across the globe, which actually physically occurs every year at the World Economic Forum, Davos gathering, right? They do actually come together to craft an agenda. They have PowerPoints. They talk about it. They have panel discussions, right? This is not so much a hidden conspiracy as a well-developed agenda, and they may genuinely believe it's for the benefit of mankind, and it's most certainly for the benefit of themselves. But why are the managerial class, these, quote, elites? Why, Why are these people so vulnerable if they dissent? It's because they have no skills that can be monetized Without pleasing, the elites. Right, I, I I make jokes about this all the time. When you know, whenever you get into the conversations about uh, uh, the apocalypse, post-apocalyptic world where you know uh, everybody's you know ha- has to contribute to the society. Re- you know, I, I, I think of uh, Walking Dead, right? And I, I I joke about this, like, man, I'm just I'm I'm gonna go around look, keep looking for a society that's you know starting to build itself up that really needs somebody. Uh, to provide you know commentary and uh, spit spitballs at the local leaders in the <laughs> in the in the camp <laughs> right I recognize that the only reason that what I do has any value is because of the time and society in which I live and there's also a thing about being in radio where you are always so close to not being in radio it's one of the one of the things like you live on that line you live on that edge for so long at all times everybody in academia must play the game or else face career death it is extremely hard to move from one academic position to another you have to pick up and go to another town in another state and you have to schmooze the existing faculty and if you develop a bad rap as someone who does not get along with others you can find yourself blackballed no one who has spent 20 years or longer to gain a credential is going to take that risk Intellectuals, especially in academia, have among the least fungible skill sets. This is why they hardly ever step out of line. Same applies to journalism. It's a very tough profession. You start at the local paper, writing up crime stories, obituaries, you know, county's biggest uh, pumpkin. Then you go to a regional paper, higher status. The idea is you get to the bigger market and the bigger publication. they are not going to risk getting off that trajectory because then there's no future.